When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pod save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. Um, and this is part one of our uh, media special where we look at the palace and the press. Um, I was going to do it in uh, in one episode, but actually I think the two will stand alone and it might be simpler to, as my mother says, have your pint in two halves. So uh, have it whichever way you round, which way around you would like. Um, one episode features uh, Matt D, chief executive of Ipso, which is the regulator for the media or for the the UK press I should say more accurately he explains far more eloquently what he does than I just have Um, and the second episode or first if you're listening that way around uh, is with Carol Watson a former colleague of mine at the Mirror who is now a lecturer in journalism including on um, law for journalists so they provide a different and um, somewhat more external perspective on how the media cover the royals. So hello and welcome to Pod Save the Queen to Matt T. Thank you very much for joining us today, Matt. You are Chief Executive of Ipso. Um, could you just explain to our lovely listeners how you came to have that job and what it actually involves? Sure. Uh, So Ipso is the independent press standards organisation. We regulate uh, almost all of the national and local newspapers in the United Kingdom, uh, plus their websites. And we also regulate most magazines that people buy in the United Kingdom. Uh, I, before I came here, worked in the civil service. So I worked for the government, but I wasn't a political uh, appointment. Uh, mainly in communication jobs. So I was used to handling the press from a sort of government relations, talking about what the government was doing point of view. Um, But that was mainly talking to reporters. A lot of what I do now is work with editors of newspapers about the standards that they're expected to keep. Um, and we take complaints from members of the public or indeed from members of the royal family uh, and we investigate those complaints and if we find that the rules have been breached we can make newspapers publish uh, corrections or what we call an adjudication which is a sort of long correction which explains how a newspaper got the uh, coverage wrong. Okay, so in terms of the the standards and the rules that um, newspapers and journalists are signed up to, the editor's code, um, could you just run us through some of the the key points and I guess highlight some of the ones that would particularly apply to coverage of the royal family, if you like? Sure. Um, I think much of the editor's code is exactly what you would expect the rules to be. If you got some members of the public together with some journalists and editors and ask them what they thought the rules should be. 
So the first rule in the code is that coverage has to be accurate and mustn't be misleading. Uh, we also have a clause on privacy and people's uh, rights to privacy and their expectation of, of privacy. Um, we then have further clauses that apply, for example, to uh, coverage of children, where we expect newspapers to meet a higher standard than if they're uh, covering adults and so on. And which which are the ones that you tend to engage with most, like Ipso tends to deal with most of all? So the, the biggest area of complaints we get, I suppose unsurprisingly, is on accuracy. It's people who get in touch with us and say, there's this thing in the newspaper today and it's not right uh, and or it's misleading. And... Um, the important thing about accuracy is that anybody can complain about accuracy. You don't have to have been personally affected by the inaccuracy to complain about it. On the other elements of the editor's code, like, for example, breach of privacy, you have to be the person that is affected by that breach of privacy. So uh, if you were a member of the public, for example, you couldn't get in touch with us and complain that a celebrity or a member of the royal family had had their privacy breached. Okay, but if you thought that, um, that something was factually inaccurate, then you could. Um, uh, absolutely right. Where does where does tone come into it? Because that is obviously something where I think that the UK media is quite different from certainly from the US media and probably other parts of of the world as well, where there is a lot more, um, I guess. A, opinion or um, the position of the particular news outlet kind of filters through into what they do maybe mm -hmm. slightly more than it does in other places for, for better or yeah. worse where, so where does tone fit for um, for Ipso? So tone is not something that we look at specifically but it definitely comes into our coverage so unlike in some other places newspapers in the United Kingdom are allowed to be biased they're allowed to be campaigning. They don't have to exhibit balance in their coverage of particular items. Although, if they say something about an individual person, they are mostly expected to allow that person to have a right of reply, uh, for example. So when people complain to us and say, this piece is really unfair, it only mentions one side of the story and they've not covered the any other side of the story in anywhere near the same detail, you know, the, the little bit of quote from the person concerned is down at the bottom of the article, newspapers are, are generally allowed to do that and we don't require them to be balanced so some of the coverage that you might see about celebrities or about politicians or indeed about the royal family I can well imagine uh, some members of the public feeling that that is somehow unfair but in this country newspapers and magazines are not required to be fair one of the big debates that is obviously ongoing at the moment is around racism and the media and racism. Mm -hmm. Is that something that crosses Ipso's um, boundaries as well? Do you get complaints uh, about that element? Yeah, absolutely right. So Clause 12 of the Editor's Code covers discrimination. Uh, and it says that somebody shouldn't be discriminated against on the grounds of things like their race or their religion or various other attributes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we uphold that a lot. 
particularly um, it also says that uh, a newspaper shouldn't cover those aspects uh, specifically if they are not relevant to the story. So mentioning somebody's ethnicity when it isn't relevant to the story is something uh, that uh, newspapers are, are not allowed to do and that we have sanctioned for. And that said, I would just give a word of caution that where somebody is interesting for a number of reasons, one of which might be their ethnicity, um, you know, sometimes I think it is possible for people to take exception to an article because, for example, it's about a woman of colour and say they're only writing this because of her race, where it may be because, a journalist would say, I'm sure, and they might say in a complaint to us, there are so many other things about her that are interesting. The fact that she's a woman of colour is only a part of that and is actually not relevant to this story, for example. It's a, yeah, it's, a compli- it's an interesting debate that is, I'm sure, one that's going to continue um, to run in the media. And the the media, every now and then, taking a really good close look at itself is no bad thing, I would imagine, you would think. I, I agree with that. And uh, I think... If I look back on the last five, nearly six years that Ipso's been going, um, I think the thing I'd say that I've noticed change is that the media, when they are covering stories, are much more likely now to be asking themselves the right questions about whether they're the right side of the line on uh, the editor's code and the various provisions in it. I'd also say... Uh, I think you would find very few parts of the media that saw the editor's code as anything other than the minimum set of standards they're required to keep to. So they're required to keep to the editor's code, they're required to keep within the law, but I think every editor in the United Kingdom often goes somewhere beyond that. And you'll see, um, for example, papers or articles in some in some pictures or articles in some newspapers uh, that won't be covered in other newspapers and that's not because it necessarily breaches the code it might just be because an editor has taken a different decision about whether to use that particular material. One of the things that is always um, probably the most debated and that the newsrooms really have to think about for themselves is the question of public interest so some of Mm -hmm. the elements of the code sort of have an asterisk by them where Mm. there are a particular set of circumstances where you can go further with it essentially and that is usually because it is in the public interest um what how would you explain how would you what would be your explanation of that kind of definition so i would say um without going into very specific detail, and we don't in the editor's code. The editor's code does not exhaustively define what the public interest is. But what I'd say is there are some instances, and privacy is an example of this, where um, if you you could imagine a newspaper doing something which in ordinary circumstances would be uh, a, a, a breach of somebody's privacy, but where the uh, public's rights to know about something or the public interest in knowing about something overrides um, that particular um, uh, breach of privacy. And an example I would give 
is a case we had where um, a woman who had been a police officer uh, had been um, convicted in court of uh, doing things she shouldn't have been doing in her job. Newspaper turned up at her house to take a photograph of her, uh, knocked on the door, and when she opened the door, they took a picture of her. Um, in normal circumstances, somebody standing inside their house, I think we would usually think, had a reasonable expectation of privacy. In this particular case, our complaints committee, who are the people who adjudicate on these things, decided that the public interest, the public's right to know who this person was, overrode the possible breach of her privacy. And so that wasn't a breach of the editor's code. So that's an example of how the public interest plays in. It, it is, it's fair to say it's a complicated one and always bears thinking about. And often it's, I guess it is related to public servants or things where public money is involved. And I guess that makes That's absolutely right. So that from thinking from my perspective in terms of when Harry and Meghan are trying to carve out their new life, I wonder whether... This, this is me talk, talking for myself rather than asking you, Matt, that, you know, that, no, just... that, that it would be one of their things thinking, I want to be free of the public money because then, you know, we are more, we, we have more right to privacy, essentially. There is absolutely some truth in that. Um, so one of the reasons why there is a public interest by, and by that I don't just mean the public are interested in Harry and Meghan, is that uh, they have, as your newspaper has covered, benefited from public money, for example, in the renovation of Frogmore Cottage, although they've said they'll, they'll now pay that back in recent times. And negotiating what's standing back from being senior royals means in terms of their interaction with the public purse is uh, a a tricky issue i think for for them and and the question of the public interest on that is also uh you know a, a difficult issue i think also um because they are prominent figures you know there, there is an awful lot about uh, Harry and Meghan that makes them interesting and makes people want to write about them and you know the circumstances in which they're standing back from senior royal being senior royals um, with the suggestion that they didn't tell the Queen they were going to make the announcement all of that you know the public the the royal family are in a thing which certainly in the United Kingdom and you know I'm sure internationally as well is intrinsically a thing of public interest this is the woman at the top of this family is the woman who rules over us and has done for many many years uh, what her family do heirs to the throne is intrinsically of public interest and when they do something which is a bit different which you know, I think undisputably Harry and Meghan are doing at the moment, that is also then of public interest. So do, do the royal family use Ipso to any degree that you can tell us about? Yeah, they absolutely do. Um, and one of the things I'd say as an observation, not as a rule, is that generally in the past, the royal family have uh, not gone to court over coverage uh, of them in newspapers or magazines, with some exceptions, um, and Harry and Meghan's uh, court cases that uh, they launched uh, late last year are a bit of an exception to that rule, but there have been other exceptions. The um, uh, 
uh, Duchess of Cambridge sued a magazine in France over some breach of privacy uh, and, and was successful in that. But yeah, we've had, um, we've had complaints from, for example, the Queen. Uh, the Queen uh, took dispute with a headline in one of our national newspapers that suggested that uh, the Queen backed Brexit um, and we adjudicated that there were that the article didn't establish that the Queen backed Brexit. Um, Pinterest, Princess Beatrice brought uh, a complaint, um, which was a much more classic breach of privacy case, where uh, she'd been on a private holiday. Uh, she'd been swimming off a yacht in the Mediterranean uh, and a uh, UK outlet had taken a picture of her uh, from the shore, which you couldn't have seen with the naked eye and required you know, a fairly long lens to uh, get that picture. And our complaints committee ruled that she had a legitimate expectation of uh, privacy in that case. And actually, you know, talking now about the Sussexes, um, we had a, a complaint from the Sussexes not that long ago, uh, which was um, a slightly complicated story about moving the car park at um, Frogmore Cottage, uh, where a publication suggested that um, the Sussexes had sort of insisted on this in a, in a somewhat bossy way. Um, and they disputed that, and we upheld their complaints and required a uh, a correction from the newspaper concerned. So it is, um, it, it's, while I would not say it's an everyday occurrence for the royals to complain to us, certainly it is, uh, they use our services and are aware that we exist. And one other thing, um, not just in relation to the, to the royal family, is that you can you can sort of engage ipso ahead of time if need be to sort of send out a warning so you know bereaved families will often send out a message to say look we're not interested in talking please leave us alone or um anybody who's kind of thrust into the public eye may sometimes get in touch with you and and send out uh, a notice of some description that's exactly right. Um, we call them private advisory notices, um, and and you've given a couple of examples about where those might be used. They are used by you know members of the public, but also sometimes by celebrities uh, to say um, we have you know considerable interest in the media. Um, we don't wish to speak to the media at this time, and uh, you know the the editor's code says that a journalist or a photographer, if asked to desist, must do so. Um, And issuing one of these notices uh, has the effect of all of the newspapers and magazines being asked to desist. So um, it doesn't mean they couldn't contact somebody, but they would need to feel that there was a sufficient public interest justification in contacting people. We send these quite often to um, all of the editors of all of the newspapers, magazines, but also to television and radio. Um, and generally, they are very, very effective in uh, relieving the pressure on on people when uh, when they've got unwanted media attention. Um- question do are the do you have paparazzi on the mailing list kind of you know the independent freelance freelance photographers are they people who subscribe to those as well or is are they outside your kind of sphere of of access so so i would i would say that the answer to the question is sort of yes and no so uh 
the people who are on our mailing list are um, most of the agencies which provide pictures to uh, newspapers and magazines in the United Kingdom. Um, there are, I'm sure, some freelance photographers who don't appear on our, our, our list. Um, but even then, if they're freelancers and they're working in the United Kingdom, they know that they will be asked when they're trying to sell pictures to UK newspapers, under what circumstances was this picture taken? Did you take it after Ipso had issued its private advisory notices, for example? So they'll know if they're freelancers that there is unlikely to be a great market for these pictures in the United Kingdom if uh, we've issued a private advisory notice. The issue comes, and why my answer is not entirely yes, the issue comes with international agencies and photographers uh, from other countries who are looking to sell into other markets. And I'm thinking particularly the US and what we might think of as the Commonwealth, so Australia, Canada, uh, New Zealand, those sort of places. Um, we, it is much more difficult for us to make those photographers aware, but also, um, you know, they uh, have markets to sell into where whether or not so issued a notice to editors is of less relevance. Well, yes, because things that we're often thinking about in our newsroom, I mean, you mentioned the Princess Beatrice case with the with the long lens. So, you know, mm. where is where was the picture taken from? Under what circumstances? You know, was that was the person sort of pursued, if you like, um, to 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 attain that? to attain that picture um, and, what, and in terms of what you mentioned about the international markets I think that the um, and a lot of our listeners are in various various countries around the world and may perceive what the sort of what the UK cov coverage is in inverted commas as being the pictures that come out of the UK and actually particularly in relation to the royal family they are not routine you know the Kate will go walking the dog in, you know, Kensington Gardens or whatever, fairly routinely. I'm, I think, but you do not see those pictures. That is not something, you know. There aren't, there are not photographers waiting on the pathway on her favourite dog walks to take those pictures and sell them into UK media. And and uh, we've talked about some of the considerations that UK media would have to get into on those pictures. So, uh, in walking the dog in a public park. Uh, does Kate have a reasonable expectation of privacy in doing that? Um, is what she do she's doing an intrinsically private uh, thing? Um, and um, I suppose I would go back on that sort of instance as well, with editors knowing um, that in many in many instances the royal family, if they are doing things which are not. You know, formal royal duties would rather not be photographed so it might be that um, if you were to get a picture from uh, a member of the public say who took the picture on their uh, cell phone mobile phone um, in the park uh, sent it to a newspaper the newspaper might look at it and say uh, even if Kate knew that this picture was being taken even if it's not a breach of her privacy, do we want to publish it? Um, and there is a sort of tradition 
generally upheld by the UK market since the days of Princess Diana, um, that the UK market rarely used pictures from paparazzi. So some of the pictures, as you say, that you might see in markets uh, elsewhere in the world, you would be much less likely to see in newspapers in the UK. Although that isn't a hard and fast rule, I would say. Um, And uh, I would also say that uh, where we have particularly websites related to UK publishers, um, that is now becoming, uh, you know, uh, an issue, more of an issue for editors. So where you have websites which are um, viewed considerably, like by considerable audiences outside the UK, you can sort of imagine somebody from, uh, let's say, the United States looking at a UK-based website and saying hang on a second i've got these pictures on an american website but i don't see them on uk website what's what's the difference why aren't they using those pictures and you know i i know that some of our publishers sometimes feel that they are um constrained in competing in uh, overseas markets because of some of the rules that we have in the uk how much how much does ipso have kind of jurisdiction if you like over what happens abroad i mean you've obviously mentioned the princess beatrice incident where the pictures were taken outside Mm. the uk but were published in the uk is it is it basically about what is published in the uk wherever it has happened so it's not quite that so first of all let me make a distinction between things which are covered in print in the uk and things which are online so Anything which is covered in print in a UK publication uh, comes under Ipso, regardless of where it happens in the world. Um, If it's online only, uh, then we have a slightly different rule for what we call global digital publishers. So if you take some of the websites of our national newspapers, they're now not only viewed by people in other countries but quite often the news on those websites is also generated by journalists and editors in other countries and uh, quite often uh, again taking the US as an example some newspapers now will have an editorial bureau in let's say Los Angeles where the editor over there is able to publish directly onto the website without having to uh, ask the sort of UK home base for permission and so we've come up with a slightly different set of rules for that and and they're slightly complicated available on our website slightly complicated but essentially if it's something that is happening outside of the UK but it's happening to a UK citizen or a UK institution then generally speaking it comes under ipso still so the Princess Beatrice case very clearly a UK citizen uh, abroad so Meghan and Harry, even in moving to Canada, um, when it comes to what is published in UK outlets, there will remain a kind of ipso outlet for them or other people who are complaining on their behalf, essentially. We, we would consider every case on its merits, and I have to be a little bit careful because there's obviously some fairly current uh, possible issues which we haven't we don't know whether we've received complaints about yet um but yes generally speaking uh you know uk citizens the subject of articles uh while they're abroad would still come under ipso so it's a complicated and uh fascinating field i've, uh, it I've is. 
Um, I was just wondering, since you've taken on this job, how has your perception of the press and how um, the media sort of engage with standards, how has that changed or, or not changed? What do you think about it now? I think, and I, and I wouldn't claim the whole credit for it, so for this, but you know, I know when I came into this job, um, I had friends and former colleagues saying to me, you're going to be rushed off your feet, they're breaching the editor's code day in, day out, it's flagrant stuff. And my experience is rather different. My experience is that um, where we see or we find breaches of the editor's code, it's really absolutely slam dunk. How could anybody not think this was a breach of the editor's code? There is always, I'm always interested to hear what um, a complainant feels and indeed what the publication feels about what their defense is to having published the material that they've published. So I would say, and as I say, I'm not taking whole credit from, for, Ipso for this, you know, the Leveson inquiry that uh, happened before Ipso was set up, I think changed uh, quite a lot of the way this was done. But my, my view would be that publications take the code of standards seriously, but also take freedom of expression very seriously. So they will uh, look at something that they believe is of public interest and that the public should know about in their terms and will look at the editor's code and think how do I justify publishing this against the editor's code and in my experience they are generally pretty good at doing that that does not mean that newspapers you know uh, always publish things that people are happy to see in those newspapers we get furious complaints sometimes about coverage in newspapers and to go back to something you said earlier, quite often that will be about the tone of how something has been covered or the balance in the article. And I can see why people might be cross about it, but equally I can see why it isn't a breach of the code and I would argue shouldn't be a breach of the code. And it's it's interesting as well with Ipso because there is some stuff that sort of happens behind the scenes where a complaint is made via Ipso, it comes through to the editorial outlet, they look at it, deal with it, fix it potentially or add a right of reply <laughs> or whatever it may be. Um, yep. Ipso communicate back to the the person who's complained in the first place and they're like actually that was all I wanted. I just wanted it to be straightened out. I don't need anything. Sometimes it obviously escalates a bit further or it's you know it's more of a clash on either side at which stage I'm guessing you that's when it goes to, through to your committee to kind of adjudicate on it and then that adjudication is always made public yes absolutely always so uh, we would start from a basis of is it possible for the newspaper or um, us to mediate uh, something that a complainant is happy with and if we can get to that so if the newspaper manages it on their own then the newspaper that's that's sort of private between the complainant and the newspaper if we get involved and mediate a resolution then we would publish what we call a resolution statement on our website which details what the complaint was and roughly what happened in order to resolve that complaint between the newspaper and the complainant. And if it goes through to being an adjudication, we publish a quite long 
judgment on that complaint and why we've upheld it and why we haven't. And you know, that will quite often run to four or five pages of uh, setting out what the uh, complainant said, setting out what the newspaper or magazine said, and the view that the committee took between the two, the two views and explaining in some detail against each clause of the code that is complained about why that is or isn't a breach of the code. And one other thing that is quite key when you make those adjudications and the the outlet is required to make a correction or publish it um, within the publication is that you can be a bit more strict about where it needs to be and there have been instances of page one correct you know uh, adjudications being published. Absolutely right. So we have the power uh, and ability to say what a correction should look like. So if necessary, we can specify the wording of a correction. We can tell people, uh, tell newspapers where it has to be published in the newspaper. And we can specify, if necessary, what font size they use and where it appears on the page. So we have an awful lot of control over how a correction appears in the newspaper. And that is obviously the last thing that any newspaper wants is to have to publish a page one. Sorry, we got it totally wrong situation. Um, so, you know, added in, obviously we always try to do our best, but there is an added uh, <laughs> added sort of Damocles hanging over you of what might might happen on the if you did get it sufficiently wrong to to merit that. Um, Matt, what do you what do you think is next for for Ipso and and the Royals, I guess? Well, so I, I don't see uh, our involvement uh, with the royal family going away anytime soon. Um, I think uh, the media in the United Kingdom and, and abroad will continue to be interested in the royal family, and I think that includes uh, Harry and Meghan. I think it will be very interesting to see um, the degree to which UK publications... Uh, believe that there is a public interest in continuing to cover Harry and Meghan um, if they are going to live their lives mainly in Canada um, and not uh, receiving money from the public purse. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see if we get complaints <coughs> further down the line from the Sussexes what the newspapers uh, are saying on that. I'm absolutely not prejudging anything in, in that instance, but I'd be interested in that. Um, But as I say, I think the royal family are intrinsically of public interest uh, to the people in the UK and and further afield. And so uh, there will continue to be coverage and scrutiny of what happens with the royal family. And, you know, let's remember last year, it wasn't all about Harry and Meghan. We had um, the uh, whole controversy over Prince Andrew, which, you know, basically involved him stepping down from senior royal duties as well. Uh, and then Prince Philip and, and his car accident earlier in the year also you know, caused an awful lot of coverage. So I, I, I see the royals continuing to be one of the issues that comes across our radar to a very considerable extent. 
Matt, thank you so much for your time and explaining the uh, various elements of, of IPSO. Um, hopefully we've answered many of our listeners' questions. If they do have more, I'm sure they may get in touch with us on our Instagram and Twitter feeds. And if you end up with a sudden influx of um, traffic to your website from abroad, then that may be partially our fault, but hopefully it won't be followed by too many extra complaints. We're, we're always happy to take complaints and if we get extra complaints because people are troubled by what they see in the newspapers, then that's always a welcome thing to us. I, I noticed on your last podcast you said that this one would only be listened to by media geeks. If we've managed to spread slightly beyond that into people who are interested in the interaction between the royals and uh, newspapers and magazines, I'd be very pleased. I would too. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Matt. And uh, we may, who knows, we may end up speaking again at some stage in the future. So that was part one. Um, Thank you to Matt for his fabulous explanation of all the work that Ipso does and its relationship with the royal family as well. Um, So that was the regulator's view. Part two uh, is kind of slightly more the journalist's view, if you like, but also looking at the law side of things. So I do hope you will join us for that one as well. But until next time. Pod save the Queen!